taken the least offence. Indeed, why should she? When told after her uncle Eddie's death that the charitable allowance he'd been making her for so many years would have to stop, times and taxes being so hard, and who had seemed quite satisfied with the substitution of tea at Harrods on her aunt Flo's biannual London visits. A few weeks later, the sixties dawned. Could Mrs. Alderman have foreseen flower power, pop art, swinging London and all the ages other lunar and lunatic achievements? She would have greeted it with vast indignation. As it was, the best she could manage in her state of ignorance and intensive care was vast indifference. Shortly afterwards, she recovered enough to transfer to a luxurious private clinic. Her first real emotion, and almost her second heart attack, occurred when she was well enough to inquire how much it was costing her. As soon as possible thereafter, she declared herself fit enough to return to Rosemont, her Yorkshire home, to convalesce. Clearly unable to look after herself properly, she, with her doctor's help, persuaded her easy-going, untied-down niece to accompany her, a large saving on a professional nurse. And during the weeks that followed, Mrs. Alderman had come to value Penelope for more than purely economic considerations. She was what all self-regarding, moderately wealthy ladies of the middle class long for, a treasure. Hard-working, easy-going, entertaining of speech and unresentful of indignity, she fell short only in the department of subservient gratitude, and, of course, of Patrick. But even with these deficiencies admitted, Mrs. Alderman, as she recovered, had begun to toy with the idea of offering Penny a permanent place at Rosemont, which was far too large for one old woman living by herself. There would be no question of salary, of course. There were, after all, blood relations. But a small allowance would be in order, and there would be the large inducement of a change of will substantially in Penny's favour. The proposal had been made. To her amazement and irritation, instead of jumping gratefully at the chance, the feckless girl had looked dubious and talked rather nostalgically of London. What had London to compare with this pleasant old house of Rosemont, with its fine gardens, beautiful views, and all of Yorkshire's loveliest towns within easy striking distance? She had once seen the kind of place her niece lived in, a dingy two-room basement flat in a district where the bus queue looked like an audition for the black and white minstrel show. Why should she need time to think about so incredibly generous an offer, which had even included the not altogether unselfish undertaking to place Patrick at a modest though decent private boarding school? So now the sight of the boy spying on her added its weight to her already great burden of anger, and she opened her mouth to utter a peremptory dismissal. But before she could speak, he said, Uncle Eddie used to do that. Taken by surprise, this was, after all, to the best of her recollection, the first time the boy, in any of his visits, had ever actually initiated an exchange with her. She replied almost as if he were a real person. Yes, he did, she said. And Caldecott might have done it, but he didn't. So now I have to do it. Her intonation placed old Caldecott and her dead husband in the same category of duty neglectors. She sliced off another sweet-smelling but overblown Madame Louis La Perriere with emphatic deftness. Why do you do it? demanded Patrick. His tone was a trifle brusque, but she graciously put this down to the awkwardness of a tyro. Because, she lectured, once the flowers have bloomed and begun to die, they inhibit, that is to say, they stop, other young flowers from developing and blooming. Also, the petals fall and make the bush and flower beds look very untidy. So we cut off the blooms. It's called deadheading. Deadheading? he echoed. Yes, she said, beginning to enjoy the pedagogic mood. Because you cut off the deadheads, you see. 
so the young flowers can grow, he said, frowning. That's right. This was the first time she had ever seen the boy really interested in anything. His expression was almost animated as he watched her work. She felt quite pleased with herself, like a scientist making an unexpected breakthrough. Not that she had ever felt it as a loss that she and the boy did not communicate. On the contrary, it suited her very well. But this particular form of intercourse which underlined her own superiority was far from unpleasant. She almost forgot to be angry, though the evidence of old Caldicott's indolence was there in her plastic bucket to keep her wrath nicely warm. As though touched by her thought, the boy held up the bucket to catch the falling blooms. She regarded him with the beginnings of approval. It occurred to her that she might by chance have stumbled on the key to his soul. Surprised by such a fanciful metaphor, she hesitated for a moment. But then her unexpected fantasy, like a bird released from the narrow cage in which it has been all its life confined, went soaring. Suppose that in Patrick's urban bedsit-conditioned body there lurked a natural gardener, longing to be called forth. This would make him in the instant a valuable and costless labourer. Then, as he grew richer in experience and knowledge, he could take over more and more responsibility for the real work of planning and propagation. In a few short years, perhaps, old Caldicott's surly reign could be brought to a satisfying abrupt end, and with it the assumed succession of the gangling Dick and the unspeakable Brent. For the first time in her life she bestowed the full glow of her smile on the small boy, and said in a tone of unprecedented warmth, Would you like to try, Patrick? Here, let me show you. You take hold of the dead head firmly, so that you don't let any petals fall, and at the same time you have a good grip on the stem. Then look down the stem till you see a leaf, preferably with five leaflets, and pointing out from the centre of the bush. There's one, you see. And look, just where the leaf joins the stem you can see a tiny bud. That's the bud we want to encourage to grow. So, about a quarter inch above it, we cut the stem at an angle, with one clean slice of the knife. So. There, you see? No raggedness to encourage disease. A clean cut. Some people use secateurs, but I think that no matter how good they are, there's always the risk of some crushing. I prefer a knife, the very finest steel. Never stint on your tools, Patrick, and with the keenest edge. Here now, would you like to try? Take the knife, but be careful. It's very sharp indeed. It was your great-uncle Eddie's. He planted most of these roses all by himself. Did you know that? And he never used anything but this knife for pruning and deadheading. Here, take the handle and see what you can do. She handed the boy the pruning knife. He took it gingerly and examined it with a pleasing reverence. Now, let's see you remove this deadhead, she commanded. Remember what I've told you? Grasp the flower firmly. Patrick? Grasp the flower. Patrick! Are you listening, boy? He raised his big brown eyes from the shining blade, which he had been examining with fascinated care. The animation had fled from his face, and it had become the old, indifferent, watchful mask once more. But not quite the same. There was something new there. Slowly he raised the knife so that the rays of the sun struck full on the burnished steel. He ignored the dead rose she was holding towards him, and now she let go of it so that it flapped back into the bush with a force that sent its fading petals fluttering to the ground. Patrick, she said, taking a step back. Patrick! 
There was a sting on her bare forearm as the thorns of the richly scented bush dug into the flesh. And then further up, along the upper arm and in the armpit, there was a series of sharper, more violent stings which had nothing to do with the barbs of mere roses. Mrs. Alderman shrieked once, sent a skinny parchment-skinned hand to her shrunken breast, and fell backwards into the rosebed. Petals showered down on her from the shaken bushes. Patrick watched, expressionless, till all was still. Then he let the knife fall beside the old woman, and set off running up to the house, shouting for his mother. Part 2 The rose saith in the dewy morn, I am most fair, yet all my loveliness is born upon a thorn. Christina Rossetti, Consider the Lilies of the Field Chapter 1 Dandy Dick Floribunda Clear pink, erect carriage, almost an H.T. Richard Elgood was a small, dapper man with tiny feet, to which his highly polished, fine leather shoes clung like dancing pumps. Indeed, despite his sixty years, he advanced across the room with a dancer's grace and lightness, and Peter Pascoe wondered if he should shake the outstretched hand or pirouette beneath it. He shook the hand and smiled. Sit down, Mr. Elgood. How can I help you? Elgood did not return the smile though he had a round, cheerful face which Pascoe could imagine being very attractive when lit up with good humour. Clearly, whatever had brought him here was no smiling matter. I'm not sure how to begin, Inspector. Though begin I must, else there's not much point in coming here. His voice had the ragtime rhythms of industrial South Yorkshire, Pascoe noticed, rather than the oracular...